Amen. So we are in Psalm 24 this morning. We're more than halfway through um, our series to the Psalms, which is the first book of the Psalter. Um, and it's been good. Psalms is like definitely one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, it's definitely a daily reader for me. It's something that really reminds me of who God is um, almost constantly. And it definitely reminds me of who I am and my great need for God almost constantly. And I can relate to the psalmists and David's songs when he's crying out for help constantly. He displays his fickle heart. And I, I definitely can relate to that. And I'm thankful to go through the psalms with the church. And the goal is to get through the whole entire Psalter at some point in the history of the church. We're not going to do that all in one sitting or one year. But we'll get there by God's grace. So Psalm 24 essentially is about preparing a kingdom for the arrival of its triumphant king. Who is this king? The psalmist asks in verses 8 and 10, and the reply we hear is the Lord of hosts, the king of glory. Now we read in the superscription that this psalm is written by Israel's greatest earthly king, King David, and it is likely that this psalm was born out of an event recorded in 2 Samuel 6 as well as 1 Chronicles 15, this event is where the Ark of the Covenant was brought out of the house of Obed-Edom and carried into the city of Jerusalem where David had prepared a tent for God to dwell with his people once again. Now in 1 Chronicles 15, we read that David assembles the priests. This is the scene of the, of the possible original context. He assembles the priests and all the worship leaders to lead all of Israel into song during the great procession of the ark up into the city gates. And although the ark it was just a gold decorative box, the kingdom rejoiced because it signified something miraculous and beautiful and wonderful. It signified the presence or the arrival of the Lord, the king of glory. You see, the ark was all about the presence of God with his people. Now, this seems to be the occasion that inspired David to write this psalm. Now, later in Israel's history, this psalm served as a song of entrance into the temple. So after David died, the temple was built, all of Israel would gather and rally in procession before they would go up to worship in the temple. And this psalm, or song, would be sung on the way up. The progression of this song would be like this. It began with a hymn of praise or a call to worship, like we read in verses 1 and 2. Then it would continue with a song of ascent. Essentially, a song meant to bring about heart inspection. Proper posture of worship before the people gathered to enter into the presence of God. Then the song climaxes with the, with the Advent celebration. The meeting with God in the holy place. So this psalm aided in heart preparation. For ancient Israel, this was one of the ways they would get ready to enter into the presence of God. And I think, as I read this, we do our best as a church to have a call to worship. And Dan did a great job this morning on bringing us and preparing our hearts to enter into the presence of God. But it would be a good habit on the way to church to maybe do something like this. To sing a song that helps remind us of who God is, who we are, and how grand and wonderful and what a privilege and blessing it is for us to enter into his presence as his people gather together on a Sunday morning. I wouldn't go as far as to say is that next Sunday we'll be out in the parking lot rallying, circling, and then we'll have Danny, our worship minister of music, sing, who will ascend the hill? And then we all chant and walk around. If we did that, we'd seem like nutjobs. 
our neighbors would think we were definitely weird. So we won't do that. But on your way to, to church with your family, go ahead and practice it. Now, the way we'll be looking at this psalm this morning is the way the majority of Bible scholars and commentaries understand it in its original context, and that is as an Advent psalm. An Advent psalm is a song that builds for a particular grand meeting of a person, a place, or a thing. In our psalm here, the song builds an anticipation describing the union of a kingdom with this all-powerful, all-holy, all-triumphant king, our Lord, the King of Glory. And the psalm has three natural breaks. And they're, they're this. Number one, a declaration of who God is. That's verses one and two. A declaration of who God is. Number two, a description of who can enter into his presence. This is verses three through six. A description of who can enter into his presence. And number three, a celebration of his triumphant arrival. Verses seven and eight. So let's begin with the declaration found in Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now there are many powerful, authoritative, sweeping statements about God that we can find throughout the Bible. Our opening statement here in Psalm 24 is definitely one of those statements. I mean, let's think about the gravity of that claim. The earth and its fullness and all who live on it belong to the Lord. They are his. Why is that? The psalmist gives us one reason. There are plenty of reasons, but he gives us one reason. Because he made it. Because he has made it. Now, in this first two verses, we are seeing two descriptors of God that I want to flesh out a little bit here. The two descriptors of God are this, God the creator of all things, and God the Lord over all things. God the creator of all things, and God the Lord over all things. Let's first look at God the creator of all things. Now, John Frame, a theologian, wrote in his systematic, his systematic theology book this, when Scripture first introduces us to God in Genesis 1-1, it presents us not with a definition of God or a list of attributes about who God is, but it presents with, to us an act. In the beginning, God created. Now this act of creation speaks at length about who God is. It speaks at length. It speaks of his power, his creativity, his control, his majesty, his beauty, his care, his presence, and his lordship, which is where the psalmist is going here. I mean, you just walk outside and look up into the sky, either after service or tonight when the stars come out, and tell me that you cannot see how Psalm 19.1 does just what it says, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation screams God's glory, and it tells us about who he is. Now, throughout the entire Bible, God is known as the creator and known as the sustainer of all created things. We read about this in the, in the beginning of time, in the first original beginning of time, written in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. All the way up to the end of this age. We read about this in Revel Revelation 4-11. Worthy are you, O Lord our, and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is the only one who can create something from nothing 
and make order out of chaos, which is what Psalm 24 verse 2 is alluding to. So when the psalmist says, he has founded it, speaking of the earth, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, what he is describing here is the power of God in ordering and creating and putting things in proper context, context out of a chaotic and untamable world. Now the seas and the waters were seen as mysterious, they were seen as dangerous, they were seen as chaotic and untamed in the ancient world because they had no traveling, they had no Google Maps, they couldn't see exactly how the ocean worked, they didn't have any weather reports, so it was untamable, they didn't know what would happen, and it was scary to travel on the ocean. So this reference to God establishing the earth on the waters is a poetic description of God establishing order and stability in the midst of chaos and instability, which is another descriptor of the power and the authority of God over creation. Now, Job 38 gives us a very beautiful and similar poetic description of God's control over the sea. This is God responding to Job after Job questions his lordship and his goodness over his life. Job 38, 4 through 11, this is, what God, this is how God responds to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Only the Lord of glory can still the seas. Only the Lord of glory can command the waves. And the point being made is that God is more powerful than the most powerful thing known to man at the time, the raging seas. Now this specific description in verse 2 is likely referring to the Genesis account of creation. When in the beginning, what was described there was a planet without form or void, dark and disorderly. This would support verse 1, the claim that God created and established the earth on the waters. So God commanded order in Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Let me read that for you now. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters they were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Psalm 24's opening declaration points us to the truth that in the beginning, God spoke, and it was. And God continued to speak things into existence and into order, and he saw that it was all good. And you know what? When he was doing this, at that point in creation, no one questioned his lordship. No one questioned his authority overall. No one had any doubts about his power. No one doubted that the Lord, that the, excuse me, that the world and all that was in it belonged to him because he made it. All the earth in all its fullness. Now to understand the fullness of the world, to understand exactly what God owns, we have to understand it this way, that God owns not just the earth as it is in different this particular season, but he owns it in every season, in famine and in feast. God owns the wealth, the harvest, the treasure. God owns the beasts and the bugs and 
everything, the birds, the blades of grass, the drops of water, the grains of sand, stars, comets, planets, galaxies, all life and its abundance is the Lord's, for he has made it and he continually sustains it. In the beginning, God's lordship was joyfully received by all creation. That is, until those who were created in his image, those who were created male and female, those who were considered worthy to dwell in with God, to walk with him in the cool of the day, in the garden, in perfect fellowship, it wasn't until they made the choice to challenge God's lordship that things went sideways. What may seem like an obvious and evident truth for us now as Christians, as far as God's beautiful power in creation and his lordship over creation, is now suppressed. It's mocked in the world. Romans 1.19 tells us so. For what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of all mankind, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Here in Psalm 24, the psalmist counters the world's rebellion and preaches the truth. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now for us today, these two verses serve as a reminder that all that God has graciously given to you, and to me, and that we see, ultimately belongs to him. It's his. All wealth, job, career, relationships, health, home, resources, life, our children, let that sink in. The breath in our lungs belongs to the Lord. It's all his to give, and it's all his to take away. The only reason we have it is because of his gracious and generous hand. So maybe this is a reminder here for those who hold too tightly to what we think is ours. Too tightly to what has been freely given to us. Too tightly to what ultimately is not ours. Because that can be a problem, right? I have a problem with holding on to things too tightly. That's why I mentioned kids, because that is one of the areas that I hold on to tightly. But they are the Lord's. Having our names on deeds and titles means nothing to God who holds claim on all the earth and everything in it. Now there has been a picture painted showing who God is. The psalmist turns to describe who is worthy to enter his presence, verses 3 through 6. This is a description of who can enter the presence of God. Let me read it for you. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Now here the posture of worship has now gone from gazing up towards God in the heavens, the all-powerful, all-creating God, to now this scrutinizing of the inward heart. And the question is asked honestly, Who is able to enter the presence of this all-powerful and righteous Lord? I mean, who can stand in this holy place? I think to understand the gravity of this question, we need to understand the holiness of God. Oftentimes, we understand or associate the holiness of God with moral purity, and that's okay. Because that's probably the most appropriate understanding of the word when the Bible speaks of his holiness. In fact, 
our psalm is mainly speaking about here is moral purity. But holiness also speaks of God's value. It speaks of God's uniqueness, which includes his moral pureness. For example, the opening passage in Psalm 24 describing God as the creator, describing God as the ruler overall, speaks of his holiness. It speaks of his uniqueness. No one else can do what God does. There is no other like him. His act of creation speaks of his holiness. Now, I I referenced Revelation 4 earlier about the 24 elders yelling, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Just two verses before, setting up this actually like wonderful, glorious song of worship, the seraphim sing for all to hear, Revelation 4, 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is underscoring his creation work speaks of his holiness. And this is why the psalmist pivots here in verse 3. After thinking about God's power and the rule over creation, he is now considering, how do I, how do we enter into a space with this powerful God? How is it possible? Because the problem is, well, there are several problems, but the main problem here is that we are an unholy people. We have sinned, and we keep sinning against a perfectly holy God. This started with our first parents when they challenged God's lordship in the Garden of Eden, and all who came after them have followed suit. All of us have sinned. All of us have failed and missed the mark all throughout history. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that only those who are righteous can stand in God's presence and live. Psalm eleven seven: for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 140.13, Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. And then Jesus said in Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Only the righteous, only the pure, are able to stand in God's holy presence. And the reason for that is because only a holy people can encounter a perfectly holy God and live to tell the tale. Back in Exodus 3, we have an example of this. Moses attempts to approach God, manifest in a burning bush. And as Moses was walking towards God, he had this to cover his face because of how intense it was to enter into a space that God dwelt. And then God called to Moses and said in Exodus 3, verses 4 through 5, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses was not able to stand and survive God's perfect holiness because Moses did not meet God's standard of holiness. So God had to keep Moses at a distance. This is why the tabernacle and the temple worship was so crucial in the Old Testament because they enabled Israel, God's people, to dwell in close proximity with God without being destroyed. God would dwell in this temple, which operated as this holy space with clear boundaries for the safety of his people. And it was only when they were ceremonial ceremonial ceremonially pure, which means they followed the steps that God gave them to become pure or holy enough to enter into his space that they could enter the outer courts of the temple safely. So back to our scene here. So the people of God are approaching the temple of worship. The psalmist asks the hard question, who can stand in the Lord's holy midst? Who is able to travel into the space where God dwells? He gives us four or gives a few qualifiers here. First, he says, he who has clean hands. Speaking of righteousness, 
in deed or in act. And then he says, he who has a pure heart, speaking of being pure in mind and in motive. And then he says, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This is he who does not commit himself or herself to worthless or idle or false worship. Okay, essentially what he's saying here is this. Those who can ascend are those who are righteous and holy. Those who can ascend are those who practice outward holiness perfectly by loving their neighbor in deed and truth, by serving to one's own hurt, by giving to the poor, by feeding those who are hungry, by clothing those who are naked, by giving water, shelter, resources to those who need it. It's offering oneself up as a living sacrifice minute by minute, day by day, and having no hesitation to do it. It's also those who practice inward holiness perfectly by thinking no bad thought, having no ill will, having no heart that meditates on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. It's by having perfect motive in all conceived decisions and actions all the time. Who could possibly ascend this hill? Now, there isn't a list of righteous qualifications in the Bible that, that don't automatically get my mind thinking about two things. It really does. It gets my mind thinking about two things. Every time I see a list of qualifications or a list of things I ought to do to be in God's presence, these are the things that come to my mind. Number one, my absolute inability to meet those requirements. As hard as I try, maybe even having plenty of good days, there's never been a time that I've been able to meet God's qualifications because I fall, I fail. And that's the truth with everyone here, if we're being honest with ourselves. No one has perfectly clean hands. Nobody has a perfectly pure heart. And no one has true worship and no deceit found in his mouth all the time. Who here is able to live up that standard? It's not without trying. People have tried. I've tried. I'm sure you've tried. Many have tried to scale the mountain of God in their own strength and merit, but none have made it apart from the mercy of God. No one has made it apart from the mercy of God. For ancient Israel, this song was not a boast of righteousness. They didn't just ask the question and respond with their qualifications. This was a declaration of dependence on God's mercy, which in practice, when they did this, it led them to repent, to offer sacrifices of purification, or the shedding of, an, of innocent blood covered their sin and qualified them to meet with God, but only on the fringe of the temple. Church, for us today, this psalm also must be, be received and used as a declaration of dependency on God's mercy. Because when we look at this list, we ought to be quick to say, I am unworthy to ascend this hill. I'm unworthy to stand in the holy place. My actions have not always been righteous, and my motives have definitely not been always pure. I think we can all identify with the prophet Isaiah, who encountered the holiness of God in the temple in a vision. And he said this in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is my first thought when I see a list of God's righteous requirements. I can't meet them. My second thought comes a lot quicker, and it's a lot more hopeful. And that is this. I do not meet these requirements, but there is someone who has. And his name is Jesus. 
I do not meet these requirements. We do not meet these requirements. But there is someone who has met them on our behalf, and his name is Jesus. As Isaiah's vision continues in Isaiah 6, God responds to Isaiah in the very next verse. Uh, Isaiah 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This act of mercy by God points directly to the perfect work of Christ and his atoning death on the cross for sins. Jesus is the only one who can confidently answer the psalmist's question regarding who shall ascend, and he did it with a resounding yes. And for those with their trust in Jesus, Psalm 24, verses 5 through 6, tells us the blessing that awaits. They will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Church, God knew. God knew we could not ascend to his level. God knew that we could not ascend to this holy hill, so he descended down to ours in the person of Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfectly holy and righteous life. 1 Peter 2, verse 22 tells us, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then he went to the cross and substituted his perfection for our wretchedness, our sin. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And it is through his death that we have gained access to the holy hill of God. Hebrews 10 just highlights this point in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have been made holy for he, our Lord, is holy. Which leads us into the last natural break in our text, which is the cause for celebration. Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, let, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory. Selah. Now this passage is probably the most, where the most compelling evidence is that this psalm's occasion was when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Jerusalem in David's day. The Ark would have been approaching the city gates, with the nation gathered to celebrate, congregating by the entryway. The procession would have been led by David, along with all the people, and they would shout out, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the gatekeeper would yell out the question, Who is this king of glory? Of course he knows who he is, but he's asking it to stir up worship amongst the people. 
To which the procession and all those gathered to welcome in the presence of the king would respond, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This is the climax of the Advent song. The king has now returned and the city is stoked. Now the past few weeks we've looked at Psalm 22, which pointed directly to Christ as the suffering servant. We looked at Psalm 23 last Sunday, which spoke directly about Christ, the good shepherd. And we had an amazing time in small group talking about that. Here in Psalm 24, we are once again seeing Jesus. But there is no crucifixion here in this scene like there was in Psalm 22. And the green pastures and the still waters of Psalm 23 had been transformed into a strong kingdom with all its inhabitants celebrating the arrival of its holy, perfect, merciful, and powerful king. This is an Advent song for sure. A song about the presence of God coming to dwell with his people. For Israel, God's presence came with a temporary object, the ark. For us today, God's presence has come in an eternal person, our Lord Jesus Christ. In closing, this psalm is truly about him. It's about Jesus and no other. The earth has always belonged to Christ. For he is the Lord of glory who has created all things. Colossians chapter 1 tells us, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the creator of all and the sustainer of all. The psalm is about him. It is he who rebukes the sea and commands the wind to stand down, Matthew 8 tells us. It is Jesus who is the only one who could truly ascend the hill of God. He is the perfect worshiper. He came into the world to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law so that we might receive righteousness from him. Romans 10, 4 tells us, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And it is he who is our triumphant king of glory, who has conquered death and defeated sin and has entered the gates of his heavenly city in triumph and in glory. And church, there is a day coming when we will all enter those gates of heaven by the blood of Christ in procession, responding to the gatekeeper's question, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is our Lord, King Jesus. Let's pray.